And that kind of goes back to um, what Gerardardas was talking about in his book when he said that elites will find ways to change things on the surface so that in practice, nothing changes at all. Welcome back to another episode of Not Your Model Minority. We're your host, Nabila Antulasi. As many of you probably remember, brand activism by corporations were super heightened this summer after the murder of George Floyd in the U.S. and the Black Lives Matter protests that ensued after this happened. We saw a lot of big businesses like Amazon, Netflix, and NFL release statements of solidarity, donate money to anti-racist organizations, and post Black squares on Instagram. What we were interested in exploring in this episode, though, was to take a closer look at how Canadian companies attempt to change the world for the better, including eliminating anti-Black racism. How exactly do they go about doing this? And what happens when the pursuit of social change is headed by the market economy and the wealthy? Can we really count on billionaires to eliminate systemic inequity? Before we get started, though, I'm going to turn it over to Nabila to take us through our landing announcement. So in preparing for today's episode, Talasi and I were forced to analyze the structures and institutions that made exponential growth for big corporations possible, but also maintain the systemic inequality and inequity experienced by vulnerable populations in Canada. Capitalism has been the driver of innovation and productivity, but as we'll discuss in this episode, it can't be separated from the racism and colonialism on which it was founded. The growth of Canada's economy is inextricably linked to the systemic removal and disenfranchisement of the Indigenous communities, and this is something we must contend with every single day. So with that being said, we want to acknowledge that the land we're on today is a traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by 3D13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. So going back to what I was discussing in our intro for a second, I mentioned earlier that a lot of businesses engaged in virtue signaling and brand activism this past summer, such as statements of solidarity and posting black squares on Instagram. Anand Giridharadas termed this phenomenon corporate blackface, which basically means that businesses and companies, they declare themselves to be anti-racist and allies of the Black Lives Matter movement without actually making any effort to change the underlying structures that sustain anti-Black racism. So what we were hoping to do for this episode was to take a closer look at Canadian companies and just take a closer look at what actually lies behind the social justice initiatives that the companies are pursuing and how they go about doing this. So in preparation for today's episode, Talasi and I read the very popular book by Anand Girdardas called Winners Take All the Elite Charade of Changing the World, which did a great job of diving into the problems of philanthropic capitalism and how big corporations and rich folks seek to solve society's biggest problems, often through donating money. So there are many interesting concepts in the book that we actually just don't have the time of getting into. But what we were really interested in is the the author's discussion of the hypocrisy of corporate altruism. And some of the main takeaways that we're interested in using as a framework for our discussion today include, one, the fact that big corporations act as if they can tackle large societal issues while maintaining the very structures and inequality and inequity that perpetuate the very same societal issues. For example, 
they profit from the status quo that maintains income inequality, poverty, environmental harm, etc., while also acting as if they're addressing it in any meaningful way. Two, the fact that big companies are more interested in starting something new, for example, a new program or fund, rather than examining how existing institutions or systemic structures should change. And three, the fact that these corporations believe that they should be the ones leading the reform rather than state actions or policy changes, and that few individuals with money rather than our democratic institutions should be solving our biggest problems. So what Nabila and I decided to do for this episode was basically to pick two Canadian companies and use the framework from Giridharada's book to analyze the companies. So I picked Loblaws. And basically, in response to the events of this past summer with George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter protest, Loblaw companies, like many other companies, released a corporate statement on their website where they condemned anti-Black racism. They also listed the following initiatives on their website, which I'm going to read out because they're interesting. Ensuring their recruitment and hiring practices eliminate any risk of racial and ethnic bias ensuring their internship and scholarship programs include opportunity for the Black community, eliminate any intentional or unintentional racial profiling in their stores, and mandating diversity and inclusion training. They also donated $100,000 to the Black Business and Professional Association, and they offered their customers the opportunity to turn their PC optimum points into donations for BPPA. Okay, so let's dissect this briefly. My question was, when I was reading this, how are they ensuring their hiring practices are free from racial bias, like they said? Who's responsible for deciding their hiring practices are free of racial bias? And how are they going to eliminate racial profiling in their stores? Do they actually have Black people involved in these initiatives? What I find really interesting, though, is that nowhere in their statement do they say anything about making changes in their internal corporate structures, such as at the executive level. And that kind of goes back to um, what Gerardardas was talking about in his book when he said that elites will find ways to change things on the surface so that in practice, nothing changes at all. Because unless Lobla attempts to make changes top down, the status quo is preserved because the people currently in power will remain in power. But other than the fact that these initiatives are essentially pointless in effect, it also highlights the hypocrisy of these large corporations. As some of you may know, Loblaw companies have been involved in so many controversies over the years that really highlight their hypocrisy. For those of you who don't know, in 2018, Loblaws, the grocery chain, as well as George Weston Limited, which are subsidiaries of Loblaw companies, admitted to taking part in a conspiracy with other businesses to inflate bread prices in Canada over a 15-year period. Loblaw was under federal investigation for this, and a proposed class action suit at the time alleged that the price fixing cost Canadian consumers $1 billion and increased the profits of the conspirators by the same amount. Lobla then offered a $25 gift card to customers as compensation for the scandal, which is hilarious. But when you consider the fact that their price fixing ended up costing each family about $400, a $25 gift card is nothing. Not to mention that the gift cards probably brought in more customers to Lobla's who would likely spend more than the $25 that they were entitled to. And here's another example. 
Loblaw shareholders rejected a proposal to pay their employees a living wage in 2018 on recommendation by the CEO of Loblaw Companies. And in 2020, during the COVID pandemic, Loblaw actually had a very profitable year. Their revenue was actually higher in 2020 than in 2019. It was so high, in fact, that they decided to increase the dividends that they paid out to their shareholders by the end of 2020. But apparently it wasn't high enough to increase their employees' wages. Back in the beginning of the pandemic, Loblaws actually bumped up their employees' wages by $2, but they terminated this in June. And then they didn't reinstate the pay raise at the end of 2020, even though they could afford to increase shareholder dividends. And like many giant corporations, Loblaw also has made use of tax havens in order to avoid paying corporate tax. In April of 2020, they were off the hook for storing more than $368 million in Barbados in a federal court of appeal decision. So let's take a look at the overall picture here. Loblaw companies donated $100,000 for Black Lives Matter this past summer. They're the largest food retailer in Canada, and they earn several billion dollars in revenue each year. So $100,000 is not a lot. And more importantly, this charity money doesn't even come close to making up for the money that they don't pay in taxes. Tax money, which can pay for child benefits, social assistance, education, and other things that people really need, especially during a pandemic. I was just thinking it's also interesting that they're depending upon their customers to use their optimum points to donate to Black Lives Matter. You know, customers who earn these points through spending money at Loblaw, combined with the fact that they have profited during the pandemic and refused to increase wages. It's it's just such a perfect example of a wealthy corporation profiting off the labor of poor people and poor racialized people and inequity while you know, appearing charitable and social justice oriented. So for my company, um, and I'm not saying that in an ownership kind of way, <laughs> I looked at uh, Bell, Bell Canada, and there was a lot of stuff that I found on Bell, which was very eye-opening for me. So I started off by looking at some of the initiatives that Bell started um, last year during uh, the BLM protest. While I was looking at this stuff, I also came across a bunch of stuff uh, related to Bell's most popular social initiative, which is Bell Let's Talk. So I'm really interested in talking about this initiative in particular, because not only were there a number of controversies around Bell Let's Talk that's come up over the last year or so, but it really, really shows the hypocrisy of a, a large corporation that tries to engage in corporate altruism. So just a little bit of background on Bell Let's Talk. So this initiative was created in 2010 to lessen the stigma of mental illness in Canada and to improve access to mental health care and support research for, for mental health care. So what Bell does is once a year, it donates five cents to mental health organizations for every text message and phone call and social media post that has the hashtag Bell Let's Talk. In the last, I would say about nine years, because this study was published in 2019, Bell has donated $93.4 million to these organizations through this initiative called Bell Let's Talk. So what's interesting to me is that when I think about mental health, 
What I find to be really important and what's lacking is that there are very few government programs that are directed towards mental health. For example, therapy, which is instrumental in in helping people with mental health issues, is still not free and accessible in, in our country. What's also important to acknowledge is that mental health is connected to a number of other issues, such as experiences of racism, experience of poverty, experience of isolation and segregation from the population. And when you take these things into account, it's very interesting that Bell has been profiting off of the very things that they're trying to address. So uh, last year, I believe, it came out that uh, Bell has an exclusive contract with provincial jails in Ontario for providing phone systems in, in these jails. And the costs for these phone systems are expensive, like super expensive to the point that they're restrictive. So in order for inmates in provincial jails to call someone, they would have to call a landline and that person has to accept collect calls. And the, the cost for these calls are usually $1 if it's local and $30 for every 20 minutes that is long distance. And it's important to note that most inmates are going to be making long distance calls because they are taken outside of their, their local jurisdiction. And what happens is that the phone bills actually end up reaching thousands of dollars per month. And this is a price that no one actually pays in real life. It's only people who are in jails and their, and their families that are stuck with paying bills like this. And what's also important to note is that because these prices are so high, it prevents inmates from actually making calls. And most calls from provincial jails are made to treatment centers, counselors, family and friends and community supports. For example, supports that would help an inmate get a job after they come out of, uh, of jail. And it essentially cuts them off from these supports. This can have really tragic consequences. Uh, for example, in 2017, a inmate named Cleve Geddes died by suicide after he was in solitary confinement and segregation, and he was cut off from his family and friends. And prior to being put in jail, he had been, been dealing with schizophrenia for almost a decade. The coroner's inquest into his death actually suggested that prisons and, and jails should be changing their phone systems. What's interesting is that Bell's Let's Talk campaign ignores the systemic and social factors that contribute to mental illness. For example, Canada Without Poverty estimates that people with disabilities are twice as likely to be living below the poverty line and that 45% of homeless people live with disabilities. So it's very clear to me that what we need are government supports to help people with mental illnesses by helping with career advancement, education, providing additional uh, mental health resources. And while there exists this lack of government support, there are companies who are actually avoiding paying taxes that would make these supports possible. For example, Bell is one of 10 Canadian companies that altogether avoided $41 billion in taxes. To give you an example, so this study found that uh, between 2011 to, to 2016, the average corporate tax rate for companies was 26.6%. However, by taking advantage of these various loopholes, Bell effectively paid 13.1% in terms of taxes. 
And it's not just that they've been avoiding paying taxes, and this is the craziest part to me, is that during the pandemic, they actually took taxpayer money. So during the pandemic, the government of Canada came out with the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, which was meant to help companies get a subsidy to stop them or or prevent them from having to lay off workers. And Bell took $122 million from the Canada Wage Subsidy Program. And at the same time, they terminated 210 jobs and increased shareholder dividend payouts. And after they did this, the Canadian Parliament actually blasted them for taking the taxpayer money while also having $5.2 billion in liquid funds available to them. So that is just insane to me. So I don't know. So Talasi, like I, as I'm reading this, it, it makes me like really, really angry uh, learning about these companies that are engaging in these social justice initiatives, but doing all of this like crazy shit in the background. But I also foresee people who are listening, who might be thinking like, you know, maybe we're being overly critical. And, you know, these companies are often put in a position of they're damned if they do or damned if they don't. And I don't know, what do you, what would you say to something like that? I think, I mean, look, we're all, I mean, most of us are unwilling participants in this capitalist society, right? And I'm cynical. And I think big corporations are always going to look out for their bottom line. But I think what bothers me, though, is that I I actually don't have any expectations from them. I'm not expecting them to look out for the little guy or for marginalized communities. You know, what bothers me, though, is that a lot of big corporations, like the ones we just talked about, they are profiting off of virtue signaling and reputational goodwill. And really what we're asking for is not, we don't care about these corporate statements where they align themselves with marginalized communities. What I think a lot of people are just asking is that they pay their damn taxes and that they pay their employees a living wage. You know, they can start there. I was actually, as you were talking, I was just looking something up and this article in 2018 said that Canada is losing it between an estimated $6 billion and $7.8 billion in taxes per year from the ultra-rich. And all of that money can go towards social assistance, childcare benefits, and other programs that people actually need. So I guess what I'm saying is my, I think I'm going from one thing to another and rambling a little bit, but I guess I personally, I don't expect that corporations are you know, going to save the world and, and are going to eliminate systemic inequity. But I think them profiting off of virtue signaling and, and these social justice initiatives, while they're responsible for maintaining these institutional inequities in the first place, it's just very, it's a hypocrisy. It's just very hypocritical. Yeah, you know what, I actually had a very similar thought is that I don't think I have the expectation from corporations to be philanthropic and just start like handing out the money that they that they make. But what I think is happening is that corporations are recognizing that by doing these things and looking like they're socially conscious, they actually bring in more profits. So I guess my thoughts are, if you're going to be telling the public that you care about a cause, then I think you just you need to do it properly. (laughs) Like you can't just like half ass it and just like throw money at something. And then that's that's just about it. 
like when we look at mental health, for example, to, uh, looking at Bell, and we view mental health intersectionally, which is uh, very important, and you recognize that there is a systemic problem here that's compounded by poverty and race and segregation in prisons, which all require government action, by the way, then one, if Bell recognized that, then they wouldn't be engaging in behavior that actually profited off of this. And two, they would be willing to sacrifice their bottom line and pay their damn taxes, like you said. So I think that when they don't do that, when they don't sacrifice their, their bottom line, it becomes very clear that the primary purpose of these initiatives, such as Bell Let's Talk, is pretty much just market branding rather than altruism. And if you really think of it this way, then it's a pretty great scheme for them because all they're doing is paying five cents per piece in order to get millions and millions of people mentioning their name. You know, if they really cared, maybe they'd just take Bell off the off the hashtag and just be like, let's talk, right? It just goes back to what Giridharadas was saying in his book. Don't want to speak on his behalf, but maybe the ultimate premise of his book, really, that we can't rely on the wealthy to eliminate systemic inequity because they're always they're always going to be looking out for the bottom line, right? In order for things to really change, they're going to have to sacrifice some of their power. And and they're not going to do that. We all know that, right? But I think since they're not going to do that, what I would really like to see is just, you know, get rid of that illusion of appearing to care about social justice and eliminating inequity. It's the hypocrisy that I find just really infuriating. Yeah, it's kind of like a like pick a side, right? Like either don't care and just like, you know, you're you're a for-profit company, just profit, but at the same time do it in an ethical way where you're paying livable wages, or if you're going to be donating a ton of money, then do it right. Exactly. You know, I maybe I'm the minority, but I would rather I rather I prefer when people don't care. Um, and corporations not caring rather than pretending that they care and actually, you know, doing the opposite of that. It, it's I remember Giridharadas was talking about that in one of his articles. He said that when these companies throw money towards initiatives, what they're really doing is putting a Band-Aid on a tumor. And sure, it helps a little bit, maybe, you know, it relieves some of the problems, but ultimately it's not really doing anything. It, it's just surface level. And ultimately, they're maintaining the problem in the first place, right? It wouldn't be there if they weren't contributing to it. Yeah, and I think it's also important to mention that, you know, government isn't perfect. <laughs> like, just even if you take into account, like, the stuff that Bell is doing in the in the provincial jails, like, the government's also profiting off of these, like, crazy prices. But I think one of the points that uh, Giridharas makes is that they're in the best position to be making these changes. They're democratic institutions. We've elected people to make these changes. When we rely on corporations to try to make these changes, these are just people with money and power, right? They're individuals that feel like they, they're in a position to be making like these huge decisions about some of the biggest societal issues, right? That is not how it should be. It should be the government. I completely agree with that, but also recognizing that the government also has a long way to go. Yes. And of course, recognizing too that sometimes there is not that much of a difference between the people with money and our elected officials. So there's that too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's sad, but true. <laughs> 
So I think what we have concluded is that no, uh, billionaires are not going to eliminate institutional inequity. As long as the pursuit of social change is put in the hands of wealthy people, nothing is ever going to change because they're not going to examine how their own institutions and the people within those institutions are part of the problem. They're always going to ensure that they continue to benefit from the status quo. And in any event, these social justice initiatives like donating money, posting a black square on Instagram, it's, it's not going to compensate for the billions of dollars that they don't pay in taxes and how much they profit off of the labor of poor and racialized people. So what can we really do about this? Honestly, I think we should just be more critical when we reshare campaigns by corporations online or when we evaluate a corporation's social justice effort. Um, I'm going to be completely honest and say that I've definitely been fooled by a company's social justice initiatives before. It's only when you really think about it, you realize that there's nothing really substantive there in all of that fluff. But mostly, though, I think, like Nabila was saying earlier, we need to recognize that social reform should be left to policymakers and not the market. So that's all we have for today. Uh, we hope that you found the episode interesting and informative. And until next time, stay critical and stay engaged. Not Your Model Minority is hosted by Nabila Khan and Talasi Kandia. Special thanks to Himmel Kandiger, Simran Dillon, and Kunal Tandon for helping us produce this podcast. Our theme music is by Pink Marble. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NYMM Podcast. You can also visit our website, notyourmodelminority.ca, to subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice such as Apple or Spotify, as well as find accessible versions of our episodes. Thanks for listening.